Good morning. It's great to see everybody. Um, I really, well, this is my, as near as I can tell, my 75th time teaching in front of the Aletheia church body, which is crazy to think of. Because <laughs> I was just trying to be like a guy quietly in the back and not get noticed when I first started coming here. And then the elders at the time had other plans, and I was informed that uh, there was work for me to do. And it's been just an incredible privilege and honor, and the, uh, the, amount of, the amount of blessing that the Lord has brought to me through just the, the serving work of putting together, you know, of putting together 75 attempts at a sermon, um, some better than others. Let's, uh, let's start in prayer, and then we're going to get into Genesis chapter 38. Abba, Father, you are the great God creator of the universe. You also would be so gracious as to call us your friends. And Lord, there are so many friends in this room. And every time I'm up here, I just am, your spirit just presses on me how much you love the people in this room, how, how important they are to you, how, um, how precious they are to you, and how you you feel their hurt and you rejoice in their joy and how you are so excited for the plans you have for them and how you see them as so much more than, than any of us could possibly comprehend. Lord, on that basis, on the basis of your grace, not our inherent worth, we ask that you would be here with us today, that you would meet us in your word, that your spirit would move. Holy Spirit, have mercy on us. We, uh, we have nothing without you. And Lord Jesus Christ, you, th you through whom the sin of the world is taken away, you who offer salvation to any who would have it, you who call us to you, remember us and uh, we pray that you are honored this morning with our interaction. You deserve the blessing, the honor, the glory, and the power forever and ever, and we want to be part of that chorus. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, this is my second time in a row to say that um, if there are children who are in the room and you were wondering if they should be in Sunday school or not, this would be a good day for them to be in Sunday school. Um, that's your call. It, it really is. Like if you want the, to have the inevitable conversations that you may have to have as a result of today's message, just know I'm not going to um, hold back or sugarcoat or... Um, you know, highly censor things that, that Scripture, about which Scripture is very explicit. And this is an explicit passage. This is Genesis chapter 38. Um, I want to start by just getting us into a little, um, a little context. So, we've been learning through Genesis that once upon a time, a very, very long time ago, and we don't know how long ago, then God had a plurality in his household. And you call this in uh, Scripture, this is referred to as the sons of God. We know explicitly from Scripture that Christ is and always has been preeminent among the sons of God. By the way, if, this is, if you're like, what are we talking about? That's how we all felt when we first got there too. Um, it is in the Bible. It's just not taught very often, but it's, the Scripture's pretty clear about this. And there's a lot of pluralities in Scripture where God is not this 
lone figure at the top of an infinitely high tower. He's inherently social. And there are other beings. And that shouldn't come as a shock because we talk about, you know, uh, even in Christianese, angels and demons and, and all these things. And, and, um, and this Bible is clear that there's different classes and different ranks and different jobs. And then we even get occasionally these glimpses where it says millions upon millions. There's a lot of something else out there. We're not all there is to it. And we've talked specifically and a little more technically about that and also in the acknowledgement that there's a lot we don't know because he doesn't explain it. He just gives us some sense of it. But one of the, uh, the reason why I'm bringing that up right now is because that means that Jesus Christ, who calls brothers and calls us ultimately his brothers and sisters who will be brought into that family, which gets really tangible when you start thinking about it from that sense, was a favored son among lesser sons, and they hated him for it. At least some of them did. To the point where he was ultimately betrayed and murdered in not just a human, uh, not just a, a human battle, but a very, very spiritual battle. Jesus says, when at, in the Last Supper, and as he's approaching it, he says, I'm about to be betrayed by somebody that I once loved and trusted. And I, when Johnny was teaching last week about Joseph's being betrayed by his brothers, and Joseph was younger than a lot of them, he probably loved and trusted them, it made me think about Christ. I, I don't know what level he was talking on when he said that. He, he, because what it says is he always knew the heart of Judas. He always knew that Judas was a liar, and he knew that Judas would betray him. So it'd be weird for him to say that he loved and trusted him. It said when he told Judas, go and do what you're going to do, it says the devil entered him. The devil entered Judas at that moment. And that just gave me this picture of when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Judas comes up and kisses him and says, Rabbi, I wonder whose voice he heard. And I wanted it to get that, that personal because there's a, a, a very layered story and battle that's going on through Scripture. And, and as we've looked through Genesis, we've, we've seen that uh, it makes a lot more sense if you keep that larger battle in mind. Because what happened? Well, what happened is God said, let us create man in our image. Well, that gets to be a pretty big statement when you start saying, who's the us and what image are we talking about? And, let, and so he, he creates this well, let me make it even weirder for you. He comes upon the world, and the world is described as a chaotic abyss, which I don't think is how he originally created it. Maybe I'm wrong, but we're also told in Job chapter 38 that the sons of God were shouting for joy in those original arrangements of the world that he was doing. So somebody was already there watching. So he gets to the world. He's, he's arranging the world that in some ways looks so old and in some ways looks so new, and he puts man on it saying, let us make man in our image and we're going to give this to them. They're going to inherit this. And there were some of those, those beings who were already thinking, no, this is going to be mine. And so what we see is a conflict, a constant cosmic conflict among rivaling siblings over inheritance. And that comes up again and again and again in Scripture. They're fighting over it. They're fighting for the birthright. 
and they're fighting for inheritance, and they're fighting to see who's going to be the greatest. And that fight starts when it takes humans into account. It starts in that Garden of Eden when the tempter comes in and gets his first real victory and starts to pull humanity down with him. And then there's this proclamation where God tells him, you and her will be rivals, and you're going to hurt her offspring, singular, and he's going to crush your head. And ever since then, one of the primary themes in Scripture has been this ongoing attempt by the evil one to, to kill and destroy the human line, especially the line that God has said, it's going to be this line through whom I bring that ultimate destroyer of you, Satan. Now, that happens first in uh, Genesis chapter 6, where we had the whole uh, Nephilim uh, passage, and that was a lot of fun, and we spent considerable time there. Then you get to um, the, uh, the flood. God lifts out a certain family. Then he establishes them, and then they go and they create the Tower of Babel, God confuses them, and it says that he divides the nations according to the number of the sons of God. That's in Deuteronomy 32, which is weird. What does that even mean? We've talked a little bit about it. If, again, if this, is, if this is just, if your eyes are rolling, so you're like, what is he talking about? We've had several sermons on this in the past. Um, I'm happy to discuss more, but I know we have some new people who may not have heard some of this stuff before. So it says he divided them among the sons of God, but he chose one nation for himself. And that nation started right around chapter 12, and that's Abraham. And what have we seen since then? We've seen the evil one trying to destroy that nation over and over and over. And that's what we're going to see happening in Genesis 38 today. It's an evil plot to try and destroy the nation, God's special line of people in his, his inherited people through whom he's going to bring the Messiah, and you're going to see the devil trying to destroy it through sin, through absorption, through conflict with surrounding uh, peoples, and through you know, individual weakness. But what you're going to find out is God still prevails. Even when the people don't realize that they're in his will, even when they're trying specifically not to be in his will, they're still winding up in his will. So there's certainly a theme of sovereignty here. So this is a tough passage. We're going to start... Um, the, by the way, there are a lot of people who say, why is this chapter even in the Bible? Because we, we start this story of Joseph, which is a phenomenal story, and one of the great stories of Scripture. And Joseph, is there's only two people in the Old Testament who nothing specifically bad is ever said about, and it's Joseph and Daniel. Now, it doesn't mean they're perfect. It just means that the Scripture really highlights... The, the wisdom and the good choices that they made and never really highlights major downfalls of theirs. So you have Joseph, who is victimized, has been betrayed by his brothers because they're worried about him being so favored by their father. He is the favored son by far, and they're probably concerned that he's going to get the inheritance. And the argument for it is he's the eldest, although he's younger than his siblings, he's the eldest of the favored wife who's dead, by the way. And you should keep in mind, when Joseph was taken by the slave traders, the road he would have traveled would have been down through the Bethlehem road. He would have passed his mother's grave on that road because that's where Rachel was buried. So Joseph is off this, and then we get this little 20-year vignette that says, hey, what, that, all this stuff we're about to tell you that happened with Joseph, 
Meanwhile, this is what was happening with his big brother, Judah. It so happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adolamite whose name was Hira. So who knows why? There's some speculation that it was probably because of the guilt of what they had done to Joseph and to their father, basically faked Joseph's death with the substitute blood of a goat and a robe that was a a royal-type robe, and they faked his death and told the father he was dead. And the father is grieving. And he says, I will go down to, not to the grave, I will go down to Sheol in sorrow and meet my son there. And Sheol is not the grave. The grave is where your body goes. Sheol is where your spirit goes. So uh, Judah, for whatever reason, says, I don't really want to hang out with my family for a while. So he leaves. And he goes and he makes friends with a, a, a foreigner named Hira, who from, it just seems like is not really a good influence on him. There, while he's there, Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. That's the the father's name, not the daughter's name. And he took her as a wife and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Er. So um, Judah marries a Canaanite woman. Not really something you're supposed to do. They've they've gone to great lengths to make sure that the, the descendants of Abraham marry people who are of a similar, similar line, people who, who are not of these foreign gods. So this is the first thing where you're going to see there's a threat of Judah's being absorbed into the surrounding people because he's left his family, and now he's with the other surrounding nations, and he's marrying into those nations. But God has to bring a messianic line through Judah. That's his plan. By the way, This chapter explains why the Joseph story had to happen. God had to pull the whole family of Abraham out of the surrounding peoples and into the one place where the local people wanted to have nothing to do with them, and that was Egypt. The Egyptians hated Israelites, detested them. So he said, you're going to have to spend some quality time there until you get to a critical mass because as long as you're around these Canaanites and these uh, Shechemites and the Hivites and all and Perizzites and Jebusites, as long as you're around them, you just keep kind of absorbing into their culture and, and you're going to get lost. So Judah marries. It doesn't ever specifically condemn this. This is the only wife he has, and that's pretty good considering some of the other vignettes we've seen. Uh, so he has a son, Er. There's a, a, a million funny puns you can do with that. They're all in my head. I'm not going to use any of them. God willing. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And yet again, she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. So, three sons. And Judah was in Chezib when she bore him. We don't know why it says that that word translates into deception. There's a huge amount of uh, rabbinical speculation about how important that is. I don't know that it really informs the text, but it's there for a reason. So, Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, And her name was Tamar. Tamar is going to be the featured person in this passage. And in Scripture, when you find a a woman being highly featured in a passage, there's always a a theme of redemption. But Er, Judah's firstborn, so so this is Tamar's Judah's daughter-in-law. His firstborn son just married Tamar. Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death doesn't say why. It <laughs> just doesn't. He did something where God said, you know what, my line's not coming through this guy. And he killed him. That's kind of a big deal. 
So then Judah said to Onan, now this is where it starts to get weird. Don't worry, we're going to explain it. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. So before everybody starts thinking about their in-laws and like, oh, um, it's, uh, <laughs> that sounds, no. Okay, here's why this, this, this was a, this law, which was later codified in the Mosaic law, this law uh, was called the Leverite law. That's something Latin or other for brother-in-law. And what it does is it preserves the inheritance lineage, partly because the property was so important, the property meaning the actual land. And the eldest would either get all the property or if he had other brothers, a, uh, a double portion versus them. And what it did is it kept the land from getting exponentially fragmented into different hands. And so now, you've got to think about it from Tamar's perspective. Tamar married into an extremely powerful family. Remember, Abraham and Isaac are some of the richest people in the world. These brothers have plundered entire cities. This is an extremely powerful, wealthy family that Tamar married to, managed to marry into. But she belongs to this family now. She no longer belongs to her other family. But when her husband dies with no sons, then it leaves her in this total limbo. She doesn't belong anywhere. Because she, she left her other family to be married into this family, but now she has no connection to this family, and the inheritance that was supposed to pass through her has nowhere to go. So the way they solved this in the ancient times, and this wasn't the only culture that did it, they said, look, the next brother or somebody very close in the family is supposed to redeem her by having an offspring with her who then becomes the heir on behalf of the, of the dead brother. That make sense? That's what should happen. And Judah says, all right, Er died, and so Onan, you go do your job. Now, Onan is uh, not admirable in any way here, because what's he thinking? He wants the bigger share. He's essentially saying, now later, the Mosaic Law addressed this and said, if it was a, a, a Leverite offspring, then they didn't do the double portion, they'd do it evenly, because Onan's in this predicament. He's like, all right, if I go have a baby with Tamar, it's not going to be my son. It's going to be Er's son, who I, I'm going to just put it on him. I don't like him because of how he treats him. He says, I don't like him. And that also kind of disinherits me. I'm fine sleeping with Tamar, though. So this is what he does. But Onan, in verse 9, knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, and that is whenever. This wasn't a one-time thing. So he would frequently go into his brother's wife, but he would waste his semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. So he's using the, uh, the, you know, the old coitus interruptus, birth control method. Now, let me say two things. They're going to be uncomfortable, but they're true. This verse is so often used to condemn both family planning and masturbation. And there are all kinds of varying opinions about those and different scriptural places for those, but this verse isn't talking about either one of those things. It's just not. You'll hear certain churches, you know, uh, we'll call uh, certain things, oh, that's the sin of Onan. No, the sin of Onan was abusing his brother's wife and refusing to take the responsibility he was supposed to take. It was, it was lying and, and basically victimizing her by pretending like she was going to be restored to status and reality when he had no intention of doing that, and he was just enjoying using her. That was the sin of Onan. The sin of Onan was taking advantage of somebody for whom he had responsibility. It's so the, this is not a condemnation of family planning. Does everybody understand that? Okay. 
So what do you think God thought about this? Remember, God has to bring a line through Judah. Son one, disqualified, dead. Son two, not doing the thing. There's no baby coming, and he's doing it on purpose. So what do you think is going to happen to him? God says, we're going to get him out of the way too. So the Lord, saw what, what Onan did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord put him to death. So what do you think Judah's thinking? He's going, there is something up with Tamar. <laughs> two out of two have died. Now, is he right? Does it have anything to do with Tamar? No, God has accepted Tamar. He has accepted, even though she's a Canaanite, he has accepted her as being joined into the royal family through whom he's going to bring his Messiah. What he's not accepting is all the people who aren't accepting her. And, and what Judah's not accepting is any responsibility that it could have been his family's side that was the problem, not her. Some of you, that's a little close to home. So Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, I'm in verse 11, look at what he tells her. Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For Judah feared that he would die. Judah, it says, for he feared that he made, would die. It's Judah feared that Shelah would die. So what's he doing to Tamar? He's lying to her. He's telling her, stay loyal to my family. You remain a widow, meaning ineligible to be married, and go to your father's house. You can't even stay in my house. You go back to your father's house, but you still belong to my family, and there's this son who you're basically engaged to now, which is a, a very, very big deal in the law at the time. So he says, now you're, you're engaged to Shelah. He's just not old enough, so let's just wait until you get there because by rights, she should be marrying Shelah, again, to bring the line back through Er, because Er was the firstborn son. But he says, ah, he's too young. But he's also like, I don't want Shelah to die. He's my last son. So he just lies to her. He just tells her, don't worry, don't worry. We're going to take care of you, but he's not. So Tamar who is very faithful to the family and to heir, went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, so Judah's original wife, died. When Judah was comforted, and that's, that's, that means something. He only had one wife, and he was sad when she died. So there was some loyalty there. Judah gets a lot of, a lot of hate for this passage, a lot for his actions here. But he, he is actually, besides Joseph, at, at um, Jacob's death, he's the most honored of his brothers. And there's a lot of reasons and speculation for that. There's a lot of rabbinical tradition around that. But he, he winds up being the most favored son, even though he clearly has some issues. So in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira, the Adullamite. So he's got his, his foreign friend, their pals, and uh, so it's so important that he's named here. So they go up to Timnah. Who else went up to Timnah in the Old Testament, by the way? One other person did. Samson. And what did he do? Found a prostitute and had some wife confusion and a lot of conflict that came as a result. And they're going to sheep shearing. Now, sheep shearing is basically a big festival. It's a springtime festival. Everybody gets together. It's a big party. It's kind of like the springtime version of the harvest festival. So Judah, who's now a widower, says, I'm going to go up, Hira and I are going to go up, and we're going to go up to the sheep shearing party. Now remember, Judah is a, a very, very wealthy person, very powerful person in the land. Tamar was told, doesn't say by whom, hey, your father-in-law is going out to Timnah to shear his sheep. Now, she knows what that means. Clearly, there is some sort of pattern here. 
Verse 14, she took off her widow's garment, so she's been living as a widow, basically in loyalty to the Lion of Judah this whole time, and for, for years, long enough for her to realize, yeah, Shayla, he's never going to marry me to Shayla. She took off her widow's garments and covered herself in a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Naim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shayla was grown up and that she had not been given to him in marriage. So she's disguised herself as what it's going to explain here is a shrine cult prostitute. But she's veiled, so he doesn't know that. He just is on his way up to the big party with his wife, uh, or I'm sorry, with his, with his friend Hiram, or Hira, and says, hey, I'm going to stop off here. You go on ahead. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. Now, she has a plan here. She's doing this on purpose. She said, what will you give me that you may come in to me? He said, well, I'll send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. She's like, I wasn't born on Tuesday. Like, I need some guarantee. I need your credit card and driver's license, and I'll give it back to you when I get my money. He said, what pledge shall I give you? And she replied, your signet. These were like these little, um, most likely, nobody knows for sure. It probably wasn't a ring. So back in this time in this culture, they had these little cylinders. There's actually a lot of them in museums now that were engraved in great detail, and they were all personally done. And you would roll them across wax, and it would leave this little picture in there that usually was the likeness of the person, and it was the signet by which they could seal documents. She said, your signet which is usually on a cord, something he would likely uh, wear around his neck, and then your staff. And back then, everybody who was anybody carried some kind of staff, and a lot of times if they were anybody of status and wealth, then they had it, you know, it was a, a customized personal staff. That's our best understanding of what's being said here. She said, your signet and your staff, and your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, took off her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. So she goes back quietly, sneaks back to her father's house and puts her normal grieving clothes back on. Then Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adolamite, to take back, by the way, the Adolamite, um, the cave of Adolam is where uh, David later cuts off the corner of Saul's robe. So in in the corners of robes, that's another speculation that when she says the signet and the cord, We don't know if they were already wearing their personal tassels at this point, but that's what David cuts off, which is a sign of status. Just an interesting aside. So uh, he sent his friend to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, but Hira can't find her because there's no prostitute there most of the time. That was a one-time thing. So he's looking around, and uh, he asked the men of the place, hey, where's the cult prostitute who was at Anaim at the roadside? And they said, there's no cult prostitute here. So he returned to Judah, and he said, Ivan found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. So Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. So this is really funny. Judah's really focusing on trying to have the appearance of honor through a lot of this. He's saying, look, I did the right thing. I sent, I sent the pledge. If she's not going to be there when I send the payment, that's on her. That's not on me. We don't want to make a mockery of ourselves. And also, you know, he's focusing on the appearance of honor when he says, hey, go be a widower, be loyal to my family, I'll send my son, or you'll marry my son when he's grown. So he has this, this appearance of honor. Judah replied, let her keep the things. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. So then about three months later, Judah was told, verse 24, three usually means a son, uh, when it's three days, three months, 
three years, it means something's about to be revealed most of the time. He was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. Now, this is a very big deal because she's essentially rejected his household, if that's the case. If she said, well, I'm a widower and I'm engaged to Shayla, but actually I'm going to go sleep with other people in the meantime, that's a, a very, very big cultural sin. Later in the Mosaic Law, it's a very, very big deal. It's on the same level as adultery. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Remember, he has the appearance of honor. He's like, not in my house. This will never happen in my house, even though behind the scenes, he's not such an honorable guy. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law. Now, this is, this is something that uh, daytime talk show hosts and lawyers live for, the big reveal. She sends him his stuff and says, hey, by the man to whom these belong, I'm pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff as though she knows there's going to be any doubt. And she probably did this in some way that was public enough that, it, that she probably didn't trust Judah by himself to make this identification. Then Judah identified them and said, she's more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. So he says, you know what? She was right. I was lying to her, and she got me. And... But what's happened here? The line will prevail. God's family is still happening regardless of all of the sin, all of the deception, all of the, uh, all, all of the, the behind-the-scenes shenanigans. God was using even that to prove His sovereign purpose and say, I have a plan here, which we're going to see. I mean, this little vignette is nested inside the larger Joseph vignette, which really He saves the nation of Israel by having Joseph be treated terribly, and God actually has a plan for that and has an exaltation in that. So even Judah and Tamar are exalted in this. So he didn't, he didn't marry her, he didn't keep sleeping with her, but the time comes, and it, when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her, room, in her womb. Twins are often a sign of double blessing. So the Lord has blessed this one-time union that happened. He said, I'm bringing twins out of this. I don't know if he needed a backup heir or what. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand. Now, don't try and visualize how this labor went because it wasn't a fun one. One twin put out a hand, which is, for those of you who've had babies or seen babies being had, that's not usually how it works. And the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one was, this one was the firstborn. It's the, uh, that firstborn thing is really, really important. This is the legal inheritance. This is how the land is preserved. This is how the ownership of the land is preserved. This is how the family line is preserved. And when there's twins, they're like, okay, we can't mix them up. So he uses a scarlet thread. I'm very tempted to go into this whole scarlet thread thing, but I don't know if it has as much meaning as it seems to have sometimes, but there's a whole lot of scarlet thread references like all the way down to the scapegoat and stuff like that, but I'm going to leave it alone. Um, she put, said, uh, this one came out first, but then he drew his hand back in, and behold, his brother came out. And the midwife said, what a breach you have made for yourself, or what a breakthrough you have made for yourself. Somehow one baby got past the other and got out first. And so he was called Perez, which means it's a, it's a powerful bursting through. And then afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zira. And that's the end of the chapter. What do we know about Perez? 
Well, Perez is the one through whom the line of Judah continues, and ultimately, he's a direct ancestor of Christ, and also of King David and all this. So there's this theme of these, these dueling birthrights. I mean, you go all the way back. You have Cain and Abel dueling. You have Jacob and Esau dueling over birthright. You have Joseph and his brothers dueling over birthright. And then I believe a very good case to be made that you have Christ and his, the other sons of God, of which he's not equal, he's uh, superior, but they're trying to take him out the whole time as well because they want the birthright, they want the inheritance. And Jesus has told us that the inheritance all will ultimately be his, and Scripture is very clear on that. There's a lot of other themes here as well, but you, you can't really read this passage without another really important passage in the Old Testament, and it, it's actually built in, and I'll show you that in a minute, the story of Ruth. And I know we're, we're getting close on time here, but the story of Ruth, if you don't know it, is a similar story of of redemption. It's a story of a, a woman who had been brought into an important family, and that's Ruth, and she was, she was not an Israelite. She was from Moab, and she married into Naomi's family, and Naomi was from Bethlehem. And she married into Naomi's family, and her husband died, and there are some other things about it, but she is so loyal to Naomi that she says, I will stay with your family no matter what. And so they actually migrate back to Bethlehem, where Ruth is a foreigner in that land. And through a series of um, really neat and, and Holy Spirit-inspired interactions, she catches the eye of a guy named Boaz. And Boaz, it turns out, is the second nearest kinsman redeemer to where he could marry her and bring her back into the family because he was actually related to her original husband. And they have, there's a, a really neat scene where Boaz very honorably has to, um, uh, you know, go f talk to the first place kinsman redeemer because Boaz is like, I want to marry Ruth, but you have the legal right to marry her. And so he puts him, you know, and they, it works out and he marries Ruth. But how could, he marry, how, how could he marry a foreigner legally and redeem her? Well, the reason is he was half foreign himself because his mother was Rahab the prostitute from Jericho. So Ruth marries Boaz and together, they have a son named Obed, who has a son named Jesse, who has a son named David. And that's, and they were both, or, or Boaz, uh, the family line of Boaz was directly through Perez. Now, what's really, really neat about that is in this passage, and I, I don't get super into these, you know, Bible code type things, but this is a real thing. In the original Hebrew version of this passage, if you go through and take every 49th letter, then it spells out in reverse, Boaz, Ruth, Obed, Jesse, David, in the Hebrew text, which is crazy. Because this was written before Ruth was written. This was, this was a, a down in the time of Moses. And Boaz wasn't born until the time of Joshua, or later, the time of the judges. So that you can take it or leave it, but just mathematically, that's, that randomly can't really happen. And there's a lot of textual stuff, and people do all kinds of codes. And you can't get too wrapped up in that because you get into this, this divination concept. I, I, don't, I don't think of it that way. I think of it as God putting fingerprints on things, saying, yeah, I, kn I knew this was going to happen. So we get this sovereign picture of God that shows how He is able to redeem 
these terrible situations, and that he has a plan through the whole thing where he's actually using this to preserve the line. Meanwhile, on the layer outside of that, there's a whole separate plan going on with Joseph where he's going to use it to preserve the entire nation so they don't get absorbed into the surrounding nations, and he's going to bring them for himself into Egypt where they can grow and flourish even though they're going to suffer for it, and then he's going to pull them out at the right time. And they're going to do that, and this one of Perez's offspring is going to be wandering in the desert for 40 years, and then one of them is going to be fighting with, uh, alongside Joshua at Jericho, and he's going to meet this prostitute named Rahab. He's going to marry her, and there's going to be a Boaz, and then there's going to be an Obed, and then there's going to be a Jesse, and eventually there's going to be a Jesus. Isn't that neat? It means there's nobody's on accident. He's got a purpose. We can have the worship team come on up. He has a purpose and a plan for everybody. What about us? Where do we fit into it? Well, we fit into it, as we're told in Scripture, we fit into it in that, you remember all those original brothers who decided they hated Jesus and didn't want anything to do with Him? Well, Jesus died so that people who said, but I love Jesus and I want everything to do with Him, He said, then you can come be my brother or my sister. And we get exalted into a royal family with whom otherwise we would have no business dealing. And we're actually not just servants in that household, but we actually get to be brothers and sisters of the king in that household. Because God is sovereign and because God cares about things like making sure nobody is, who wants to be loyal to his house is left out, making sure that there's a plan for everybody, making sure that there's a, 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 a redemption for whomever is looking to be redeemed. And it's an incredible thing that, that he values something like Tamar's um, desire to be part of that line. He values it so highly that even when Judah and Er and Onan and Shelah all want to reject her, he says, no, she's part of the family. She's in this family, even though she's Canaanite. She's been faithful to this family, and she's going to get the honor of being in the line. And she is in the line, and she's named in the line. And it's put down here forever for all of history how that happened and what she went through and how faithful God was to her and how he rewarded her for her faithfulness, even through the most unlikely of circumstances. Let's... Um, uh, Worship this first song together, then I'll come back and lead us in communion. You're going to have a seat. Um, in light of what we've discussed today, I'm going to read a passage that you, you all know. It's a familiar passage, but it, it never gets old, and I'm going to read. It's a little bit lengthy, but I, it's Paul reviewing the story of the, of the creation and what's going on in the creation and how we fit into the creation. And you need to think when he's saying creation, Paul's actually quite explicit on this. He's the one who says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against a whole myriad of powers and, and principalities and spirits and all kinds of things. And, and he talks about us being surrounded by great clouds of witnesses. And he talks about the angels rejoicing when, uh, when um, things go right. And he talks about the fact that we're going to judge angels someday. So he's very much in this, this big, massive spiritual mindset. So when he says creation, he means all creation. Not just 
the little human story here on earth with these far removed beings who aren't really paying attention. He's talking about the active conflict, the active uh, battle over the, the divine right and the inheritance, the effort to destroy Christ, to destroy Christ and to destroy the people that Christ is elevating into his family, much to the outrage of people who were originally parts of his family and left that household. I'm going to be in Romans 8, starting in verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Being part of God's family through Christ includes suffering. And just like Tamar was loyal to the family through her patience and suffering, he says, you need to be loyal to this family, this name that you have taken. If you're going to call yourself Christian and you're going to take that name like marriage, don't take it in vain. Don't let it be empty words. It's got to be real. For I consider that the present sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Remember, God sees us differently than we see ourselves. For the creation, what creation? Just the rocks and the trees and the rivers and the people? No, the whole creation, the entire hierarchy of ancient creation, where the ancient conflicts come from. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to the corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what we ought to, we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Isn't that exactly what we learned today about Judah and Tamar? He worked all things together for the good of not only Tamar, who had been adopted or joined into the family legally, but also for his people, for the people yet to be born and for the people who already were born. And he worked it together in spite of their sin, in spite of their corruption, in spite of the lies and the deceit, in spite of the fact that he had to take two of them out along the way, he worked it together for his purpose. Now, that can be a, a nice academic principle in Scripture, but you can try and imagine the, the, the patience of Tamar and the despair of Tamar that what she had to go through waiting to see, like, am I just 
completely left behind here. My father-in-law blames me for the death of his sons, and now he's put me in this like permanent legal limbo and lied to me about what's going to happen next, and I just am an eternal widow. God didn't make us to be eternal widows. He made a plan of redemption for us. He, he provided at great expense to himself and in great humility, he provided a way where we can be joined legally and permanently into his family as heirs to everything. And that can be, oh, okay, now I know why this part of, is in Scripture, and that's great. But what does it really mean to you? What does it mean to, to you? We get that, that just as Tamar had that revealing moment of saying, hey, you know what's being carried in my body? It belongs to whomever is identified by this, and it's unmistakable. We're going to get that same moment, except it's not going to be Christ denying us. He's going to be saying, this one is mine. Here's the mark. And what the Scripture tells us we're marked by the Spirit. He says, you know what's in, what's in their spirit? It's mine, and they're mine, and they're part of my house. And then un, we'll, re, we'll reverse it. We'll say exactly what Judas said, and we'll say, you're more righteous than I. But we get His righteousness. That's the, the ongoing story of Scripture, and I, I hope you were able to put that into a little context. But note, God doesn't look at things in this long, linear timeline. He just looks at what He's doing. So we're in this place where we feel like, oh, we're waiting, 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 waiting. And we just read in Romans that patience is good. He is coming. He will be here. His family, all of creation is groaning in expectation to see who the sons and daughters of God are and who the inheritance will really belong to. And it's going to come to a climactic battle. If you think the evil one's going to let this inheritance go easily, you can feel the war in your own body. Wait till it becomes a physical war on earth, which is what Revelation tells us is going to happen. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and the reminders of how you have nested truths that are not just uh, neat sticky note reminders, but are demonstrations of the reality of your your will, your love, your plan, and your power on a, on a very human level, but that we're not so disconnected from that spiritual level. Lord, press that on us and let us know more than ever what Christ bought for us, the inheritance which we are offered in Christ. Lord, let us fix our eyes upon it. Let us fix our eyes upon Jesus, our inheritance, as His eyes are fixed upon us as His inheritance. He speaks that so eloquently in John, especially 6 and 17. He wants us to belong to Him, and He won't lose us in spite of the sin, in spite of the lies, in spite of the deception, in spite of the inadequacy, in spite of the fact that we're foreigners. He's not going to lose us. And Lord, let us take communion and, and thanks for what it cost Him and what He was willing to go through to make sure we could be redeemed into His family. And let us recognize that everything we has, that everything we have is yours. So we can give joyfully, Father, and we can take communion. And Lord, whatever has been standing in the way, hindering our, our prayers where we need to make something right or address something, help us to do that in prayer. And Lord, if there's anybody in this room who doesn't feel like they've ever really accepted that offer of redemption, that that 
that uh, opportunity to be joined to the family of Christ, and they feel like they're still outside. Then, Lord, move in their hearts, but in Jesus' name, move in their hearts to say, I really want to be part of that family. I want that certainty. I want to be part of that legal transaction that says I'm an heir with Christ forever. And then when the creation is, is, when it's revealed before all of creation, that I can be counted as one of the children of God. And with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if that's you today, then I'm going to be over there, over by, our eyes are closed, but to my right. I'm going to be over at the prayer room near there. We'll have a, one of our sisters from the women's ministry will be over there. Come pray with us. And if there's anything else hindering you that you need to address in prayer, come pray with us. Or if there's anything that moved in your heart today, anything from the Word today that, that really stirred in you, take it to the Lord. He's trying to tell you something. Take it to Him. Take it to Him on your knees and say, Lord, what are you showing me? More often than not, it's a reassurance of His love for you, and it will water your soul. Lord, bless these children of yours in here today. Do not withhold your goodness from us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's continue to worship together.